It's a new day for the American auto industry. The Biden administration has proposed new emission standards designed to turbocharge the push toward electric vehicles. The goal, that within 10 years, two-thirds of all new passenger cars and a quarter of heavy trucks sold in the U.S. will be electric. EPA Administrator Michael Regan, speaking last Wednesday, said this will dramatically reduce greenhouse gases that cause climate change. This is historic news for our children, It's historic news for our climate. It's historic news for our future. As a father of a nine-year-old, I can assure you that there's no greater priority for me than protecting the health and well-being of our children, ensuring that they have a safe, healthy, and reliable future. This is a massive industrial policy initiative that includes billions of dollars in tax credits to encourage Americans to buy electric vehicles, billions more to develop charging stations across the country, and a big push to catch up with China to produce the essential component to make it all possible, batteries. And Steve Levine, tell us how big a deal this is. It is a big deal. Altogether, It's the Biden administration saying, let's not play around. Let's move to EVs now. All right. Uh, Let's move to EVs now as in electric vehicles. That's Steve Levine. He's editor of The Electric, an online publication from tech media company, The Information. He writes about EV batteries and electric vehicles. He's also author of the book, The Powerhouse America, China, and the Great Battery War. I'm Anthony Brooks, and this is On Point. This hour, the quest for electric vehicle batteries and the complicated path toward an electric vehicle uh, future. So, Steve, let's go into some detail, and let's start out here. What did the Biden administration just propose? Lay out some of the details. It's proposed a couple things. Last week, it was... Um, it, it was let's reduce annually carbon emissions from passenger vehicles by 13 percent, re- requiring car makers to do that. And uh, in, in, in total, it would be more than ha- half of of, uh, uh, of of what was produced over the last few years. But the only way of doing that would be to electrify almost two thirds of the of the fleet by by 2032, uh, which is a uh, very large lift. The other thing that happened um, this week, the Biden administration announced which vehicles can uh, uh, avail of the subsidies that it's proposed to help bring about the transition. Right. And I want to get into that a little later in the hour, sort of talking about the specific vehicles and what it means to Americans who might be thinking of buying electric vehicles. But let's go back to that heavy lift. So this idea that this proposal seeks to increase the EV market share by to something like 67 percent, two thirds of new cars sold by 2032. Um, That's up from just less than six percent last year. You call it a heavy lift. Why? How daunting a task is this? Well, so the first problem, let's say that everyone in the United States who wants to buy a, a, a car in uh, an EV in 2032 uh, goes out to try to buy one. There, There is not enough um, batteries, the critical minerals that go into batteries, mainly lithium and nickel, 
there is uh, there is not projected enough of of those two metals uh, to make that many batteries, and 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 uh, that's the first thing. And the second thing is the one thing that we've left out of the whole discussion about EVs is the consumer. There, there is not a um, there's not evidence that two thirds of American car buyers want an EV. That's really interesting. I mean, both those both those challenges sound huge. So, so let's talk about the battery challenge. Um, and and I understand that when it comes to the Big batteries that are essential to electric vehicles. China is way ahead. It controls something like three-quarters of the market for the raw materials that go into these batteries, like lithium, like cobalt, like nickel. Uh, so automakers rely on China for these minerals. What does that mean in terms of making this, uh, achieving this ambitious goal that the Biden administration has laid out? Yeah. Well, so the goal, the goal is to um, is to carry out this transition, but to do it without China. So the fact that China um, controls the commanding heights of batteries, China doesn't control the actual uh, minerals. They come from all over the world. They have some of the minerals, but but they've tied up the min- uh, a lot of the minerals. And uh, but what they do is their their strength, the Chinese strength, is that they control the center, the midstream, the processing of all of those minerals uh, all along the value chain until you get the electrodes that go into the batteries. It it means that China by itself is like all of OPEC, except for batteries and and at any moment remember china is our greatest is uh the united states greatest technological rival and at any moment it could say in in whatever language um we're going to supply our own ev industry and we're not going to supply yours hmm. so so essentially what America needs to do um, to make this um, possible is to set up its own EV industry. How, how, does it, how does it do that? And has the Biden administration with these new subsidies and, and uh, these billions of dollars of, of, of investment going to make that possible? It, it, it's starting from scratch. The, the U.S. Is, is starting essentially from, from scratch. The down payment that the administration, Congress, is Joe Manchin, remember, Senator Manchin was the one who came up with the Inflation Reduction Act, um, uh, has come up with, is big. There is no peacetime equivalent industrial policy. Uh, there, there's no analogy to the IRA. And and remember, there are three pieces to it. So there's the infrastructure bill. That's very big. That has a lot of money for both batteries and charging stations. There's a there's a, a gigantic loans program, $250 billion. And then on top of that, there's the Inflation Reduction Act. So all of those together are, are hundreds of billions of dollars it's real money, and it's a serious. Uh, it's a serious program. Uh, everything is in the execution. 
private industry needs to come in and uh, and and uh, invest much more than that. But it is a very impressive start. Right. So catching up with China that has a sort of 10-year head start, if I understand this correctly, sounds like the challenge. Another challenge, too, is thinking about why and how China was able to do this is this is a country with a centralized command economy. So setting up an industrial policy that makes this possible feels like it's more doable over there. I mean, is there a precedent in the U.S. for this kind of investment and really starting an industry from scratch and trying to make it work in a relatively short time time frame. I mean, isn't that one of the sort of key questions to 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 consider here? Yeah, yes. In 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 peacetime we haven't. In and in wartime we've uh we've scaled stuff up very, very quickly, but but there is no analogy to what to what we're trying to do. And we don't have the know-how. So hmm. we don't we don't have the skilled workers. We don't know how to make these electrodes at scale, and it's not just making them, but it's making them uh, efficiently and competitively. So, so the EVs that come out the other end are the right price. So, uh, consumers want to buy them. Um, it's it it is a um, a real challenge, and uh, you, you, you know all I can say is that is that. Industry needs to step up to the plate and and um, make that happen. And where do the raw materials come from to make these batteries? They're 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 not here. I know that there's talk of, I guess um, there's at least one lithium mine being considered in the United States. But in general, where do these raw materials, the nickel, the cobalt, the lithium, come from? Yes. So that that's key. The majority of the of the commercial concentration of lithium on the planet is in South America, the lithium triangle. That's uh, Chile, Argentina, and and Bolivia. And then, uh, but most of it is mined because they're, they're uh, you know, slow off the mark in getting, getting scaled up. Argen um, Australia is producing most of the lithium uh, for, for EVs. Nickel, comes from um most of it comes from um Australia, Canada, Brazil, uh Russia and and the cobalt most of the cobalt cobalt comes from Democratic Republic of Congo which which I don't have to tell you has has been problematic from a labor standpoint and an environmental standpoint. Right, right. So obviously, this is going to um, entail, among other things, some um, big sort of efforts at international cooperation to make this happen. This isn't something that the Biden administration can just sort of wave a magic wand and say, we're going to do this. Watch us. We've got to work with other countries, it sounds like. Yeah, that's true, but that presents an opportunity so we we've been on on a um, on a uh, downward trend in in terms of acting uh, like a superpower. Here we have the opportunity to put together an international map of countries that are effectively that they they are part and they are the U.S. battery supply chain. 
Interesting. All right. We're discussing the push toward electric vehicles and where and how to produce all those batteries to make it all possible. Steve Levine is with me. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. We're talking about the push towards electric vehicles in this country and specifically about all the EV batteries we'll need. Steve Levine is with me. He's editor of The Electric, an online publication from tech media company The Information. He writes about EV batteries and electric vehicles. He's the author of the book The Powerhouse, America, China, and the Great Battery War. And I'm happy to introduce uh, Alyssa Kendall. She's a professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of California, Davis. And Alyssa, welcome to On Point. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Anthony. I'd love to start with you with this question. As we think about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, how should we think about the potential of expanding the push for EVs? Because as we talked about in the last break, it's not straightforward. But how are you thinking about that challenge? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's no denying that if we're going to decarbonize our transportation sector, especially our road, our on-road transportation sector, we need to electrify. But there are different ways we could do that, ways that either demand a lot more materials or, or, or many fewer materials to do it. Right. So when, you, when you're talking about materials, we're talking specifically about materials uh, for these batteries, correct? Yeah, that's right. And and in fact, when we talk about materials for batteries, we're usually talking about the expensive and sometimes high-impact materials that go into the cathodes and electrolytes, some key parts of, of the batteries that make the lithium-ion battery, which is what we use in electric vehicles, such a great technology for that application. Right. So I know this is an opportunity to go deep into the sort of wonky weeds of this stuff. I don't want to do that, but I'd appreciate it if you could walk us through briefly sort of battery development, from mining the minerals to the way the battery goes into the car. What are the steps along the way? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, we do have to start with that raw material extraction, right, at the mines where we get important materials like lithium and nickel um, and and cobalt, for example. And um, once we get those materials, we have to refine them into battery-grade materials. Um, And that's another step that's important. Sometimes those things are not located right next to each other, for example. Um, and, and once we get those materials in refined to the level they need to be at, we have to manufacture 
um, for example, the, uh, the, the cathode, which is a really important step. And in fact, uh, sometimes things move around the world a lot. These materials might get mined one place, refined another place, and then uh, the majority of cathode manufacturing, for example, is in China still. Uh, and then uh, once we get those parts of the battery made, we can essentially assemble them into the batteries we see in an electric vehicle. And that require a, an EV battery pack is actually a bunch of, of batteries put together. Steve Levine, why is it that um, this, the supply chain uh, at this point in this sort of race for these EV batteries is controlled in such a big way by China? Why doesn't the U.S., why isn't the U.S. a few steps ahead in this game? The... Uh Story started, you know, I can make this fast, but but the, the, the story started right after the financial crash, 2009, 2010. The U.S. and China decided they were going to go for batteries, EV batteries and EVs. But we stopped. We stopped around 2012 when there was a, a, a couple of scandals around how um, how subsidies were were spent. And but the Chinese kept going. So that's it. The Chinese built up uh, its refining industry, its battery making industry through the teens all the way up up until now. We're only starting now. And and just playing off of what Alyssa just uh, just said, uh, we're we're building up in the United States. We hear almost weekly uh, the um, the construction of a new uh, uh, battery gigafactory. Those are just assembly factories. Still, when those are built, the United States will rely on China for the finished cathodes, anodes, and and the other uh, minerals and components required for the batteries. Right. So um, I guess I mean. Obviously, to the extent that there is uh, international tension uh, with China, that would have an effect on, uh, and I'll go to you with this question, Alyssa, I mean, that would have an effect on how successful um, the United States will be in carrying out this ambitious goal, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that when we think about, for you know, I think a lot of folks are worried about, for example, running out of minerals. But in fact, we have a lot of bottlenecks in the supply chain uh, at each one of those steps um, that could prevent us from being able to deploy the you know magnitude of batteries that we need. And I think one one thing to think about is that you know uh, we might focus, for example, on um, opening a new very big lithium mine in in the U.S. But if we don't actually also think about all those other steps in the uh, in the life cycle or the supply chain associated with the battery, we're not going to succeed in in essentially reducing our reliance on these existing global supply chains that right now at least remain uh, largely dominated by China. I want to also come back to this idea about the sort of environmental challenges uh, required to build these batteries. I mean, among the elements needed to produce the batteries for our phones, for electric vehicles is cobalt. About 70% of the world's cobalt comes from the the Democratic Republic of Congo, which I think you mentioned, Steve, and and pulling it out of the earth comes at a a big cost. So in his book, Cobalt Red, Siddharth uh, Kara writes about the abysmal conditions of cobalt mining and its toll on Congolese workers. Uh, He talked about this on WHY's Fresh Air last February. You have to imagine like a lunar landscape. Uh, The earth has been hacked up, dug up, 
uh, upturned uh, for miles and miles in every direction. The trees are gone. The air is a, a suffocating, toxic haze of dust and grit. Uh, and people are in trenches, in pits, in tunnels, caked in toxic filth. Cobalt is toxic to touch and breathe. And there are hundreds of thousands of poor Congolese people touching and breathing it day in and day out. Young mothers with babies strapped to their backs, all breathing in this toxic cobalt dust. And the whole landscape has just been destroyed. It's hard to capture in words just how horrific the landscape is and the scene of human degradation is. So that's Siddharth Kara, author of Cobalt Red, speaking on Fresh Air last February. Alyssa Kendall, I mean, um, I mean, I think this is something that a lot of us aren't thinking about as we start to imagine what it means to have an electric car fleet um, running all over the United States. It comes with a big cost. It, it certainly does. And, and we should all be moved and, and horrified at the idea that these supply chains, which are meant to essentially solve a really existential crisis for the world of climate change, also um, impose unbelievable burdens um, and tragedy on populations that aren't even going to ever drive an electric vehicle, right? But I, I do, uh, and an optim- sort of to be optimistic about this, part, it, partly driven by the response, for example, in Europe um, to, to issues of cobalt extraction in the Congo, there is a really big push to First of all, design out cobalt, um, which is also a cost-driven. So future, the current battery chemistries use less cobalt than previous ones, and there are chemistries that use no cobalt at all, such as uh, lithium iron phosphate, which China is rapidly adopting. And so there are ways for us to try to prevent this. There are also ways for us to make sure that if we do use cobalt, that that you know there's some guarantees of improved. Um, you know, reduced human rights impact, improved environmental conditions. Um, There are always issues with verifying that that's actually happening. But there are sort of global pushes right now to try to make sure that as we invest in this entirely new supply chain, which is what we're doing right now, we're building this supply chain that never existed before. We don't repeat the tragedies of our incumbent supply chains, our oil and gas, for example, which has long had horrific impacts on local communities. Um, And our, our ideal should be to try to make sure that this supply chain that we're building, this global supply chain, tries to avert um, these kinds of uh, working conditions and impacts on local communities. And Alyssa and Steve, I want to play another piece of tape. Um, in March, uh, Lithium Americas Corporation began construction on a lithium mine in Nevada's Thacker Pass. And there's been a lot of pushback um, to the development, which would cover 5,000 acres and create an open pit deeper than a football field, the way it's been described. And the people of Red Mountain, that's an indigenous group, opposes the mine. They cite environmental concerns and consider Thacker Pass sacred ground. So here's Gary McKinney, a spokesman for the people of Red Mountain, um, who says the rush for lithium is trampling on Native American rights again, he says. They did it with gold. All the settlers came in. Then our treaties were never ratified because of that. Oil came along. Now this uh, white, white gold, they call it, is lithium. Now it's the same story. We need it today. We need it right now. It's it's good. We need it. We need it. We need it. Without ever understanding what they're doing, what they're what they're approving, what they're permitting, what they're allowing, is not good. 
So that's Gary McKinney, a spokesperson for the people of Red Mountain. Steve Levine, Steve Levine, chime in on this one because as we think about this, um, you know, obviously this is a path we're going down, but we got to think carefully how to balance these environmental concerns. What's your thinking on this? Well, one thing I think about is that um, one, the United States and and Europe. Um, if people want EVs, then um, then the uh, we need to take responsibility for everything that happens up to and up to and in, and including the EVs, and that and that means that we need to be willing to uh, to uh, host the mining and the processing in our own country. We we can't push out these kinds of um of side impacts involving the the environment and in, and involving labor uh onto other countries that that would be wrong uh so that's one uh, one thought a second thought is that what's being um what what's happening is uh around the world in the countries that ha- have the metals that have the minerals is very different from the history of oil. Uh, now, the uh, outlier case is the DRC, is the Democratic Republic of Congo, and you know, with the nightmarish conditions, you have uh, other countries like Indonesia, Zimbabwe, Brazil, uh, the Lithium Triangle c- countries that are insisting that uh, that that these minerals not be simply mined and sent abroad, they're attempting, well, they're insisting that they capture as much of the value chain as they can uh, so, so, that you, so that you do have much more of the wealth staying in, the, in those countries. What can the United States do in, in those places as American companies are buying minerals from there is insist that the, that the conditions that, that we enforce here, both labor and environment, are in, enacted uh, there, there too. I see. So it sounds like, um, I mean, among the things that you're saying there um, is that this isn't a case that we need to onshore to bring to America all of this mining. We have to find ways to work with the mining around the country, around the world as it exists, but just to make it more environmentally um, uh, thoughtful and, and uh, yeah, environmentally thoughtful. Is that, is right. that fair? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, so you put together a map. We're 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 working. The United States is working with its allies. You know the uh, traditional allies: Europe, um, South Korea, Japan, Australia. But a, a, a complete map of, of a, a U.S.-led battery supply chain would include Indonesia, Zimbabwe, um, Argentina, Mali. Uh, and, and you get you get a very interesting new new geopolitics. Interesting. And Alyssa, what happens when these batteries are used up? Where do they go? And how do we need to think about battery recycling? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So uh, right now, their batteries do get recycled, but 
Um, but we have so few, in relative terms, uh, electric vehicle batteries getting retired right now that the amount of recycling we're going to need in the future is immense. And we do see a lot of investment um, in new recycling infrastructure in the U.S. Um, but I, I want to highlight one thing, which is unlike other major markets for electric vehicles, which primarily are Europe and, uh, and China, we don't have any policies saying that uh, these batteries need to be recycled. Um, we don't have any rules in place anywhere, not even in California, which um, has about half of all the electric vehicles in the U.S. And um, so right now, there's no guarantee that these batteries get recycled. Um, now, you can't just put them in a landfill, and they're big enough that it's not like the little batteries in a cell phone, which can easily end up in a waste bin and in a landfill where they don't belong. But we do have to think proactively about how we're going to actually guarantee that we're going to have recycling happen. And on And on top of that, uh, it would be great if we did that recycling here. This is a domestic source of minerals that uh, that does not require uh, mining, um, and I think we should listen to you know to the people of Red Mountain. There are places that we can mine lithium in the U.S. with fewer um, issues of you know tribal sovereignty and and things like that. But it would be great if we didn't have to mine new min- minerals. So we do need to invest in in new recycling infrastructure. It would be great if we either invested here in the U.S. or at least thought about North America, um, Canada, U.S., and Mexico, um, and thinking about where recycling um, and supply chains could develop for that here. If we invest in in you know cre- basically doing our own refining making our own cathodes, that recycling industry has a ready market and has the steps needed to actually, you know, become a circular battery economy, meaning that the materials coming out of a battery go back into a battery. Um, so I think there's a lot of promise there and and policy is needed to make sure that there are responsible parties um, at the battery end of life to make sure that these uh, batteries do get recycled. It's not necessarily cost effective, meaning that we do need policy intervention um, to to ensure recycling. I want to ask before we're coming up on a break, but um, I was struck by some statistics here. And again, I don't want to go too deep in the weeds here, but the idea uh, about this is that it's essential, obviously, that we move toward electric vehicles, but it's not going to be a silver bullet anytime soon anyway. So I'm looking at these numbers. The number of EVs uh, in use globally topped 10 million in 2020. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong. By 2030, the international... Uh, energy agency expects there to be at least 145 million, possibly as many as more than 200 million. So big numbers. But I'm reading that MIT researchers say that the number of vehicles with internal combustion engines is expected to increase from 1.2 billion to to as much as 2 billion. So Steve Levine, I guess um, the quick question there after that long preamble is... We've got a ways to go before we wean ourselves off of the internal combustion engine, even with this new push toward electric vehicles. That's the history of technology. Remember, the the steam engine is invented at the end of the 17th century. The last commercial steam locomotive was decommissioned in 1974. (laughs) Great. That's a great fact. Steve Levine, uh, Alyssa Candle, stand by. We're talking about the push to go all electric here in the U.S. and new emission standards from the Biden administration, what they mean, what they do. When we come back, we're going to talk about what it means for consumers. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. 
From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. We're talking about electric vehicles and the batteries that go in them and the uh, not-so-straightforward path to get there. With me today is Steve Levine. He's editor of The Electric, an online publication from tech media company, the company The Information. Also with us is Alyssa Kendall. She's a professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of California, Davis. And Alyssa, I think you mentioned earlier in the show um, the challenge of getting consumers to go along with this. And uh, there, um, there's a Gallup poll. I want to just read these results. This is very recent. A majority of Americans are at least open to the idea of buying an electric vehicle. 12% said they are seriously considering buying an electric vehicle. 43% said they might consider it in the future. On the other hand, 41% said unequivocally they would not. When you hear numbers like that, what does that tell you about the challenge that we face moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt that we'll have some consumer acceptance issues. Um, But I'll say I I started my job in uh, many decades ago as an engineer working on really early electric vehicles at a U.S. auto company. And the transition or the change we've seen in attitudes is great. Um, And what I mean by that is that I think uh, even if that poll doesn't sound great, if 40 percent of Americans don't want to think about owning an electric vehicle, I think if you looked five or 10 years earlier, that number would have been much higher. Uh, So I think that we are transitioning towards uh, changing attitudes here. Um, I think there are other things that could really, you know, I think a lot of folks have never interacted with an electric vehicle before. um, And so they don't they don't really, you know, whatever they know about the vehicle maybe isn't isn't really the user experience that they would have if they owned one. So I think as we start seeing more and more EVs on the road, as we start seeing EVs in different vehicle sectors, uh, by that I mean right now most EVs on U.S. roads are essentially expensive, large luxury uh, vehicles, and and we don't have you know we don't we haven't really served all vehicle users. The other thing I want to add is that most most consumers in the U.S., especially those that are not wealthy, and most consumers in the world, in fact, are used car buyers. Mm-hmm. And right now, most of us used car buyers have not had the opportunity to buy a used EV that still performs well. And so I think that's that's going to be a real shift in consumers as well. We're going to start seeing used EVs that are still in good condition, and by that I mean that the the battery, uh, you know, the battery um, state of health is still high, that the range the vehicle can drive is still very high. Um, so stu- so secondhand users don't have these issues of range anxiety. Uh, coupled with that is that if we do a good job of investing in a lot of charging infrastructure, public charging infrastructure will also change barriers to ownership. If you live in an apartment building and you don't have off-street parking, you can't really right now buy an electric vehicle and have confidence that you can charge it regularly. 
So there are lots of buyers who have other reasons for not wanting an electric vehicle. So we need this investment in charging along with investment in making EVs more affordable um, and, uh, and more attractive to consumers. Yeah, and Steve Levine, uh, chime in on this this point about sort of how to make electric vehicles, um, assuming that we get this quest for batteries uh, down correctly. Uh, talk about this issue of, of, of making it more attractive to more Americans. Right. So um, the vehicles have to uh, have to charge fast. You have to be you. You have to have the comfort that you're not going to run out of gas. Basically, you're not going to run out of charge someplace, uh, or that your daughter, or that your uh, your husband, your wife are not going to some uh, you know some late uh, night on some dark road run out of ju- juice. So so there really there has to be charging everywhere, and it can't be normal charging. No one's going to wait eight hours. Uh, to to get their car charged up, so you should be able to charge up 150 miles uh, in 10 minutes. This has to be everywhere, and and the other thing is is co- cost is important. So uh, 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 t- Tesla <laughs> needs to start making a vehicle that costs under thirty thousand dollars. Uh, yeah. So co- cost is a primary issue. Right. And I'm just wondering too, um, Alyssa, I'll come back to you for this one, this idea that are we trading one dependency oil on, on another kind of dependency, mined minerals and, and, and how we need to think about that. And I'm just wondering, should we be thinking about this thing? I mean, as we move toward an electric future, should we just be thinking about this thing differently? Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of a generational difference. My own daughter, she's 26. She doesn't have a license. And I'm sort of like scratching my head saying, why don't you get a license? She doesn't, she's not interested in it. And I know that's just an, an anecdotal story, but I think it's representative of a generational shift that may play out in favor of a better future. Uh, fewer people sort of taking for granted that they have to buy a big truck and, and own a big truck, for example. Yeah, well, I agree with you. I'm a college professor and interact with a lot of people um, who are who are a generation or two below me. And I can attest the same thing, that the attitude towards car ownership and, and the idea that a driver's license is what gives you freedom, I think, is shifting a bit. Um, and it's not it, – part of it is enabled by essentially, you know, the fact that we are much better connected than we used to be um, because of um, social media, because of um, different tools that help us um, access mobility when we need it without having a car. And I think that that is a really important influence. When I think about an electrified future, I think about three levers. If, you know, if we want to avoid the kind of dependency on, on mineral supply chains that have that, that we've talked about here um, and that have echoes of some of the issues of, for example, oil dependency, although they are not the same, I, I can think of three key things. One is, of course, car ownership rates. How many cars do we need on the road? Or actually, how many cars do we need? Because um, a lot of folks have uh, more than one car. But how many cars do we need? Um, how big do the batteries in these cars need to be? Getting to Steve's point about um, you know, people's anxiety and, you know, both in, sort of real anxiety. So there's real reasons to be anxious about running out of electricity in your car sometimes, um, but also perceived um, risk of running out of, of charge. Um, and then 
this so our our levers are car ownership, um, how big our batteries have to be, um, and then really. Uh, investing in things like recyclability and repairability so we don't have to demand new battery uh, materials and new batteries all the time. And if we think about these these three levers, it, it's, it, it's investing not just in these supply chains, it's investing in really attractive transit, for example, so that folks in an urban um, and, you know, in dense suburban areas can really avoid having as many cars. I'm not saying people need to have no cars, but not having, it as, you know, as much car dependency matters. And we can cut back demand for uh, cars and EVs by almost 20 percent if U.S. cities just looked a bit more like Europe cities. And so I'm not saying that people are going to have less mobility. They're going to have more mobility um, and they'll have alternatives to driving a car. Um, and, and I want to be clear that, you know, people in rural areas, I'm not implying that they shouldn't have cars. Uh, I, it's, it's a matter of, of providing alternatives to, to folks um, where alternatives can be more attractive than sitting in congestion, for example. Sure. Um, yeah, we can also encourage smaller battery sizes. Um, the original Nissan Leaf uh, was 24 kilowatt hours. The average battery uh, on U.S. roads exceeds 75 now. So, so we've tripled the average battery size on the road, and we keep growing that. So are there ways to stop growing it or to maybe even reduce it a bit more? Um, and then, of course, in investing in recycling so that we don't have to demand new minerals. I think if we if we can take a more holistic picture about how to address this problem, we can actually um, get much better outcomes with respect to reducing material demand and delivering a better future with respect to, you know, access to, to mobility. Sure. And Steve, uh, listening to what Alyssa said, um, you know, making American cities look more like European cities, public transportation investment in recycling, all those kinds of things, smaller batteries. Do the new EPA guidelines and, and these huge investments that the federal government is contemplating or is embarking on right now, uh, is there thinking along those lines? I mean, are some of the dollars going to go in, the, in, in those directions? Well, well, they're not going for money is not going, uh, to my knowledge, toward public transportation. Um, it is going toward recycling. I think that that is I think uh, car makers and policymakers understand what Alyssa has uh, has laid out. And and there is a future of recycling. Um, the, the point that she raised though, that, that I think is a, uh, central one that isn't, um, thought about much. We have a, uh, the, the EPA guidelines are purest in, in, in nature, uh, in a way they, in, they envision two thirds of 100% EVs by 2032. And, and that's what gives you this big, uh, cut in CO2 emissions. But if you if you look at, at how people really drive, we we rarely, the average American rarely goes on a 300 mile trip. We're we're driving 20, 30, 40 miles a day, which means that we can use hybrid vehicles. You we can all buy hybrid um uh EVs that have a small battery or a small battery and a combustion engine. And uh, the, the these cars would, would use much less in the way of critical minerals. The cars themselves would cost a lot, a lot less. And you would get the same um, outcome, the same outcome in, in, in terms of the cut in 
in vehicle e emissions. Um, this is something you don't hear about and, and policymakers ought to think about. Really interesting. And Steve, related to this subject and, and, and thinking about the subsidies that are there for consumers, basic question, is this a good time to buy an electric car or electric vehicle if, if you're out there thinking about this? Is it better to wait, let the technology develop a little bit more? What, what do you think? Yeah, so I have a personal opinion on, the, on that. I do not own an electric car. Um, I'm waiting for 2025. In 2025, you're going to have a ton of more selection. Uh, costs are going to come down. Um, uh, so I advise people to wait until then. Hmm. And uh, and also, I advise people to consider buying a, a hybrid and not, not a full EV. Interesting. What do you think, Alyssa, on that question? Um, well, I, I guess there are two ways to slice it. One is it depends where you live. Um, here in California, where I'm sitting, we have a really low carbon electricity grid relative to a lot of other parts of the U.S. So if you're, you know, the more miles you can, well, of the miles you're going to drive, the more you can do electric, the better. So in a place with a reasonably low carbon electricity grid, you know, buying an electric car sooner than later can, you know, really result in deep reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. On the other hand, I think Steve's point is well placed that as we see, uh, you know, more and more models available on the road, um, you're more likely to find a vehicle um, that meets your, you know, your criteria, whether that's a criteria on price or different kinds of characteristics of the vehicle. Um, and uh, and maybe it's always a good time to, to buy a used electric vehicle if you're fortunate enough to find one. Um, they're, they're, they're hard to find around here. Um, and I, I have a really aged plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. I think that's the technology that Steve is talking about, where you have a battery that can take you quite a few miles all electric and then an engine that turns on. Right. Um, and, and, and those can be good choices as well. Um, although, in the long run, those will be more expensive because you have a whole engine powertrain and a whole electric powertrain. Although, because batteries have been so expensive, that hasn't been true in the past. So I think in the future, that, that might flip um, to the all-electric vehicles being um, less expensive uh, for consumers. There is some pretty uh, strong political pushback um, against the Biden administration's um, effort here to sort of push the country toward electric vehicles. I'll, I'll just read one tweet. This is from uh, Representative Eric Burleson. He's a Republican from Missouri, and he tweeted on Monday accusing the Biden administration of attempts to social engineer people out of their pickup trucks and into what he calls some puny electric car. Um, so, Steve Levine, I mean, talk a little bit, if you could, about that. I mean, how to respond maybe how the Biden administration should or advocates like you need to respond to that kind of political pushback, which is definitely out there. I, I am not an advocate, by the way. I, I, I'm a, a journalist, but... but Fair, uh, fair but, point. I'm sorry I called you an advocate. What I meant was you know an awful lot about this subject to, to talk yes. in a smart way about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me say that that, uh, that person who said uh, about the social engineering, the, the, this is... Um, Political talk, and there and there are uh, really cool electric pickup trucks: the Ford F one fifty, the Rivian. Uh, there, you know, the Cybertruck that are that that are out and and that are co coming out. But one thing you've not asked that that, uh, that I think is important. Um, I don't think that this 
is going to happen like this. They're setting this this two thirds. I do not think that we get there by 2032. Hmm. And the and the the main reason is that there aren't the minerals. Uh, if 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 uh, if policymakers smarten up, the only way to get there is through this pathway that Alyssa talked about and I talked about, and that's smaller batteries uh, accepting hybrids. Uh, which we might, but on, on the current path, my view is we don't get there. Interesting. Alyssa Kendall, we're li- literally down to our last 30 seconds. I'll give the, a, a final opportunity for you to give a final thought here. Um, what are you looking forward to um, as we move toward this, you know, getting closer to an all-electric uh, fleet of cars? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think I remain optimistic that we're going to make real inroads to seeing more and more electric vehicles on the road um, and and that these vehicles are going to be attractive to future consumers for sure. Um, My real focus right now is thinking about the midlife of electric vehicles. You know, we've been focusing on pushing out new vehicles. We haven't really thought about all the transition that needs to happen in the repair network and used vehicle sales and ensuring that consumers of used vehicles have, you know, excellent reliability and the ability to repair at low cost. So that's where I'm looking. I'm looking at uh, these aging vehicles vehicles and making sure that they remain useful and safe for everyone. All right. Alyssa Kendall, professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of California, Davis. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your point of view on all of this. Thank you. And Steve Levine, editor of The Electric, an online publication uh, from the tech company The Information. He's also author of The Powerhouse, America, China, and the Great Battery War. Steve, great to have you today. Really appreciated your input. Thank you. Thanks, Anthony. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point.